Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, celebrating pro and college football history. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackson Michael. This is the Game Before the Money podcast. And this is the third episode in a row with former Colts and Patriots executive Upton Bell going to give his takes on the upcoming Super Bowl, Super Bowl 58 between the Chiefs and 49ers. He's also going to share some of his memories of Super Bowls when he was in the front office of the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl 3 and Super Bowl 5. Upton was director of player personnel during those times, and he drafted a lot of the players on the Super Bowl Five champion Colts. You can hear some of those stories in the last episode, and there's also an episode of 1960s Colts draft stories that you'll want to listen to as well. Now, don't forget, coming up, I have episodes with Hall of Famers Jerry Kramer, and Joe DeLamalier, also 49ers great Randy Cross. I also have a really interesting episode coming up with former Buccaneers and Colts trainer John Lopez. Don't really hear too much about the ins and outs of being an NFL trainer, but you will in that episode. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com and remember that this is a nonprofit and you can donate to it at thegamebeforethemoney.com. All right, let's have a listen to what Upton has to say about Bill Belichick's retirement, the AFC and NFC championship games from a week ago, and the upcoming Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. Let's, let's talk about Bill Belichick. It's Super Bowl week. We all know Bill Belichick's history of Super Bowls, even dating back to uh, being the Giants defensive coordinator in that Super Bowl against the Bills. Uh, what, do you, what do you read about the Belichick situation right now? Michael, I've said from the very beginning that I believe that Bill Belichick would not, this is way before any interviews with Atlanta or any place, that I believe that he would not get a job for next year. And I believe uh, it is doubtful in the future. My reason being going all the way back to my time 50 years ago, and I'll explain why what happened then still goes today. I had gotten in a fight with the owner, Billy Sullivan. Uh, We did not agree on practically anything by the end over the hiring and firing of a coach. Well, he finally uh, uh, fired me he and their board. And uh, I had gotten afterwards many people that were interested because of the way I was able to build the club and bring good people in. But every interview was, we'll get back to you. And uh, later on, as a good friend of mine, who actually was an owner in the league, explained to me, when you get fired, owners speak to other owners. Owners asked, well, what was the problem? And uh, he said, when you're dead, nobody knows you. And by dead meaning, you you know, if you're out of the league, you're gone. And maybe you can be revived by somebody. But probably it's 80% sure you will not be. 
Now let's now transfer to today. Bill Belichick, who many think is the greatest coach of all time. I think he's a great coach, but I question the moniker of the greatest coach of all time. And so Belichick, and I think he probably was gone in October uh, with, with uh, Kraft. I think that he had already made up his mind then. So Belichick with Brady could have this the attitude that he had here with not only the media, but also with ownership. And what were they going to do? And then, of course, he moved to uh, get rid of Brady and not pay him. And Bob Kraft went along with him. Well, like everything else, it has repercussions. Sooner or later, it catches up with you because one day the wins begin to disappear or the losses increase. So in the case of, of Bill Belichick, he gets rid of Brady. Then he does not win after that. And Kraft, uh, probably resenting that, that he let Belichick do it, uh, then I think just waited for his moment to see if Belichick could continue to win and break the record. Well, neither happened. And there was a disastrous year last year of bringing in two coaches, both being paid by other teams, to coach a position, offensive coordinator, which is the key to your whole team. And neither one of them had any experience. It was a disaster. And as a result, uh, probably a quarterback, if he had any chance, Mac Jones was ruined. So I'm laying all of this out to say, if you're an owner of another team, what's the first thing you're going to do? If you're Arthur Blank in Atlanta, certainly you look at his record, you have, which is terrific. You look what, what he has done. But then you look on the other side of the ledger and you're encouraged by an infrastructure there that does have a general manager and 50,000 uh, yes men. And what happens? Uh, you you start to think, well, he, he'll he need to change the whole organization. Uh, this is the way he runs it. Now, again, I, I wasn't, and most no, nobody was in on the conversations on the boat with Arthur Blank. But in having that, Blank probably went back to his people that didn't want Belichick there because it would cost some of them their jobs, and then thought about it. He's soon to be 72. He has had a losing record the last three years, going into the fourth. It has been a disaster this year. He got rid of arguably the greatest quarterback of his time, or of all time, whatever you want. So you think about it. And then he probably picks up the phone, which I experience, and calls Bob Kraft and said, well, what about it? And I'm paraphrasing, Kraft probably said, been a great coach here, Arthur, don't want to say anything, but let me tell you about the last 10 years. So that's owners talking to owners. I can confirm that when I, when I talked with Coach Levy on the Game Before the Money podcast on a prior episode, he talked about how he had been fired by the Chiefs and before Ralph Wilson, the Bills owner, hired him, he called Lamar Hunt and said, why did you fire Marv Levy? Now, in Hunt's case, and in Levy's case, Hunt said, well, I think that's the biggest mistake I ever made. 
And when you think about it, it's like getting another job. You know, your prospective boss is going to call your boss. And what I want to remind people or try to tell them that I, I'm, I'm the son of a former owner of two teams uh, and the son of a commissioner, but, but a son who heard what owners thought even then. This is back in the 40s, the 50s. It doesn't change. They, they, they as, as the old saying goes, they're owners and the rest of us are renters. And so owners, and even more so today, they only talk to each other and to God. That's it for them. <laughs> and that's in some ways have changed to the NFL. It's, it's even more a bottom line league with an infrastructure, which we're going to get to into later on in the conversation, where they really believe in analytics. These guys have, have made millions using some form of analytics. And as I'm told, is that the analytics department at the Lions is one of the biggest in the league. So maybe uh, Dan Campbell isn't as big a dope as we think he is, or I do, and maybe pressure is being put on. So again, back to Belichick. This is what went into my thoughts. It wasn't like you get a a lot of know-it-alls around here. Oh, well, I think he'll be back this year. Oh, uh, well, yo, he'll be back next year. What the hell do they know? Because they've never really understood, I think, to a degree, on the level that I've been trying to say. Not that I'm on some great level. It's just my experience is you can change everything. You can change the coach. You can change the quarterback. You can change the team. You can't change the owner. And you can't change an owner calling another owner and saying, let me tell you this. Now, in the case of Lamar Hunt, who my father knew and and actually offered him to be commissioner of both leagues uh, before the league actually came out in 1960, my father said he couldn't do it. Lamar Hunt is basically was a very nice person. Uh, I, I would say in any of the dealings that I had with Lamar Hunt, I can tell you even going back in the 1959 when he was just like a 27-year-old, uh, just like a, you know, you would say a kid, he was the nicest and he was very, very shy. So I am not surprised that he would say that. Uh, I, thought, I thought he was more frank and honest than most because if somebody fires you, it's usually that son of a bitch lost or this or that. That's the way it is. That's life. So my feeling finally on this part of the conversation is I don't think, and I think it's sad in some ways, I don't think Belichick will ever work again. Well, you know, and, and like you said, I, I mean, he is 72. So, you know, he's done it for a long time. So there may be, and I'm just speculating here, but um, there may be a part of him who is is ready to retire also. And I, uh, I don't think so. You don't not think so? All. Okay. All right. Oh, no, not at all. He's a lifer. Uh, and that's the good part of him. He fiddles with things. He he invents things. He invents, uh, you know, defenses for this. I don't think he really lost much of his ability as a, a defensive game planner. What I think he lost is is his 
ability or his thought about gambling on third and fourth down, especially when you have a bad football team. Uh, to me, why why not take a chance every time? What the hell difference does it make? You're not going to make the players. You're not going to go to the Super Bowl. No, I don't think at all. I knew his father. I know I know coaches that that this is the holy grail, and and if you're out of it, no matter what face you put on, you can be a very miserable person. I I think he will, if he could, he would. Coach till the day die. Okay. All right. That's great. Uh, that's great insight, Upton. And of course, you worked with one of the best, Don Shula, who owns that wins record still. How do you uh, feel about that with, with Shula's record staying intact? Well, as I said in my book, which you have, when I was asked to make a decision by Ron Borges, he said, All right. One of the chapters is that I said the greatest coach of all time, bar done, was Moses. And Moses was Paul Brown. And then he said, well, what's the order after that? He said, what about Belichick? And I said that I thought Belichick was a great coach, but I thought Shula did more uh, with all sorts of different quarterbacks. You know, starting off, yes, he didn't get along with Unitas, but he brought Earl Marl in, and we almost, almost did it to that disastrous 1968 Super Bowl. Then it comes back. And and uh, Bob Greasy gets hurt, and he puts Morrow back in again, and they salvage the season and go go to the playoffs for the first time. And then they, they three successive years, they go to the Super Bowl. One is an undefeated season I don't think will ever be broken. So I said, even though he didn't have a great Super Bowl record, and I remind people of this, Michael, Super Bowl is one game. If you're having a bad day on that day, you don't win. Uh, it's not like any other sport, the best out of three or seven. So I picked Shula as number two behind Paul Brown. Not that he could match Belichick's record of six Super Bowls, but he did a lot of other things. And remember, unlike Belichick and most of the great coaches, Shula, he didn't win Super Bowls and he didn't win a, a lot of playoffs. But he had a winning record every year till the year that he was finished. That's really so, incredible, considering the number of years that he coached. Well, not only that, which is another thing that we can do a show on someday. What really makes me uh, uh, upset is this question about records. Shula won and the most perfect season when he only played 14 games. Now these guys play 16, 17, and believe me, it'll be 18 and eventually 20 as they drag the bodies off the field. So take up a, a, a record like John Unitas. 47 straight games from 1955 to 1960. He threw at least one touchdown pass. That's Lou Gehrig. That's Ted Williams. That, that's, that's one of the most incredible records. He did it in 12 games. So what happens? It takes like 37 or 40 years for Drew Brees to break it. But he breaks the record because he played 16 games. I'm saying, what the hell is this? So I look at it a lot differently than the Johnny-come-latelys with the slide rules. And that is, what did that person achieve in that period of time and those games big and small? 
So Shula would be number two. I would rearrange it. I made Belichick number three, but now I would I would rearrange my list if I was doing the book again, and I would put in Chuck Knoll, a, a Bill, a, and definitely Bill Walsh uh, in that category. So, and and soon to be maybe the next genius, depending upon the next four or five years. How about the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs? How how about him? So, well, that's that's Andy Reid, who is from yep. the Mike Holmgren coaching tree, who is from the Bill Walsh coaching tree. So you've got, uh, you know, you've got a long, uh, deep roots in NFL football, the way that it is classically played. And, but it was interesting watching, getting, getting into the uh, championship games that we watched. It was interesting watching Andy Reid forego a field goal to expand his lead in the first half when uh, a guy like Mike, Mike Holmgren or Bill Walsh would, would never do that. Well, that's the one mistake I thought he made in that game. And as, as we start to look at the two championship games, uh, I screamed at the set. I said, Andy, take the goddamn three points. You're playing against one of the best running teams in the league. You're playing against one of the most dangerous quarterbacks, particularly as a runner itself. They have a great field goal kicker. They have one of the best, if not the number one defense in the league. Take the points every time. That's what Paul Brown said at my first Browns training camp in 1950. When in doubt, take the three. Drive the field, and if you're not close, take the three. And that's the only time that I disagree with him in that game. Other than that, it's probably one of the best, might not seem like it, one of the one of the best game plans, one of the best defensive game plans, and maybe, even though it might not have seemed like it, one of Patrick Mahomes' best games, because in the first half, they score 17, and the second half, they score none, but Mahomes goes from being the aggressive, take the chance, make the run, make the great throw to Travis Kelsey for the first touchdown, to in the second half, understanding the maturity of being just a game manager. Let's manage the game. Let's not take the gamble. Let's let them, Baltimore, kill themselves, which they did. A lot of mistakes uh, for Baltimore on that one decisive drive uh, where they ended up fumbling near the goal line or at the goal line, basically. And then, of course, the subsequent drive when Lamar Jackson throws that interception. Let me just say this. It's the dumbest coaching job I've seen on both sides of the ball by supposedly the best team in football. I I told you in in our, our discussion last week that I favored Baltimore only slightly. You actually picked Kansas City. And... One of the, well, two things I saw. The offensive game plan. What do we have? A situation where Lamar Jackson is one of the best, if not the most dangerous runner in football from the quarterback position. We have a very good offensive line for his team. All right. The Ravens have one of the best. They're one of the best running games. 
and and the league. What did they do? They didn't run. They didn't have more designed plays for him to run. Yes, that's a good Kansas City defense, but it's not a great one. And so the one big play is when Jackson scrambles, looks like they have a hold of him, makes a, a great move, gets out, out of the way of the tackler, sheds the tackler, and throws a touchdown pass. I thought, oh, my God, here we go. But after that, that was it. Then defensively, they acted like a bunch of street mob, street gang. Well, what the hell was that? All of those penalties that were so costly, trying to be over-aggressive and slugging people. And, 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 and how about the, the, the great catch, and then, and then the Baltimore receiver gets up and taunts over. You, you had to call it. He taunted the defender standing over him. And that what was like a 40-plus yard gain ended up, you know, minus 15 of the walk-off. So many key points. I kept yelling at the set, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're acting like a mob. It was undisciplined football in a game where, and then there was the, the play where Kelsey kind of uh, got a penalty out of the Ravens. It was almost like the Chiefs knew that uh, they could get in the Ravens' heads almost and force those undisciplined errors. They, they could, but, but you wouldn't be able to get into somebody's head if they weren't prepared. I think that they, because remember they said before the game, uh, maybe late in the week, that we're not we're not going to let Patrick Mahomes get away with his scrambles. We're going to we're going to lay the wood on him. You know we're we're we're, we're going to make it difficult for them. But what happened was they 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 made help make the Chiefs' victory in their game plan because I'm sure that Mahomes was aware that these people. I mean, one time I thought they're going to behead him. I mean that it was kind of a legitimate hit, but. But basically, he kept his cool. They didn't. I mean, Kyle Van Noy, who was here at the Patriots, I mean, this is the biggest game that you're going to play? And you're, you're acting like a, a, like a street mob? And that's the difference, too, maybe, is what, what happened with their coach. Any other coach that I can remember, I, I can remember whether it was Shula or, or anybody, even a Belichick, you know, John Harbaugh, I mean, when he came off the field, I would be on his ass, pardon my language, I would be on him and say, and I've seen coaches do this, by the way, don't you ever do that again. That was really stupid. But he didn't do it. So these guys continued it every time. Whether it was a bad call or whatever it was, they were constantly yapping and bitching. And then, how, how about it, even if it was done on purpose, with what? Less than two minutes to play, and, and uh, Baltimore fumbles. Then Kansas City has got, got the ball before Mahomes makes that great, uh, great pass to Sandling. And uh, what do they do? The defensive tackle purposely, if you want to stop the clock, purposely hits the guy 
their offensive tackle, Kansas City, and drives them all the way back. So what's he get? He gets a 15-yard penalty. Yeah, it reminded me of that old story when Don Drysdale beans a hitter, and then the manager came out and said, why did you do that? And Drysdale said, well, you you told me to put him on base. You didn't tell me to walk him. And uh, it was kind of <laughs> like that kind of situation. Well you, well, you told me to, to, to get a penalty. You didn't tell me just to jump off sides, you know. Um, so it was – it kind of reminded me of that. But, you know, Kansas City really – they were the disciplined team that day. That made a difference. And I, I thought my personal – and I'm, I'm – Curious to hear your your take on this, but to me, watching that game, it really almost defined a team win. It was a team win. It's rare that you have uh, both the offense and defense in sync like that. The, de- the defensive game plan was brilliant. Let them kill themselves. Baltimore didn't do anything about it. They kind of took away the run. And then they also, when they... When they rushed Jackson, what they tried to do is keep him in the middle of the field. Don't let him outside. You let him outside, and you're dead. So everything that they did uh, was uh, just a terrific move defensively. And then offensively, when they saw, I mean, they really were the underdogs in that game. And, And when they saw what they were able to do offensively, There was two separate halves, and that first half was let's score as many points as we can and even going for it, which I didn't agree with, because that that would have made it 20 to 7. And then you've got a different game in the second half. But anyway, that said, in the second half, as I said earlier, Michael, they made it a simple game plan. And that was try to control the ball, play, play it very safe, be a game manager. And and that's the difference, I think, in Mahomes as a quarterback with everybody else today. That a guy that young ordinarily would want to go out there and fling it around and say, Let's you know, let's go. He knew what he was going up against and he knew how good their defense was. So he was just let's let's wait for them to make you know whatever it is mistakes offensively, but our offense is just going to take what they give us, and that's the way it was. For the average fan that wanted to see fireworks, they probably were disappointed. For me, it was just brilliant on both sides of the offense and defense. It truly was a great game, and I, I enjoyed it more than a lot of the high-scoring games uh, that we see today. And speaking well, it was, of... It yeah, was, it, was, it was great strategy. And this is where I think, to me, I watch all the sports and have, from, from being a kid all the way to today, the only sport that I didn't have a lot of experience in early was uh, hockey. But there's, the ultimate game is football because you have... On every play, a chance, just one missed block, one missed tackle, away from disaster. It's the most strategic of all games. It, it truly is 
of a, you know, a war game um, where people hit each other and the game of speed, all the other things. But is it is uh, it's like Bobby Fischer years ago playing uh, Spassky. It's it's the it's the great chess game of all games, and I've watched them all. And and what we saw Saturday was point counterpoint, and and the great chess game was played and it was won in the second half by a team that was content to manage the game and let the Spaskies make the poor decisions. Well, and in, in keeping with the board game motif, I guess you could maybe say the NFC championship game was more like a game of checkers based on some of the decisions that were made in that game. Like the White House checkers. I, I, I mean, when you get up like that, and, and you and I discussed last week uh, the great comeback by Detroit being down by, I think, almost the exact same score. It was the same score at halftime in 1957. Yes. Same thing at halftime. The difference was, I mean, when you have somebody down, like Detroit had them down, and your head coach, Campbell, makes some of the dumbest decisions I've ever seen in a championship game, uh, like he did. Let's just take the first half. Do you think he would have kicked the field goal if somebody hadn't constantly reminded him, you better do it, you know, this will put us three points more up on the board? Well, that's, that's a little bit different. But in the second half, it was, it was pure suicide and, and unnecessary suicide uh, by macho Dan Campbell. I mean, I, I just... I can't think of any other coach in history that would turn down a 17-point lead midway through the third quarter on the road. I'm just surprised his team, they're not going to say it publicly, are really angry with him, particularly when it was third and three or third and two, and they needed, now that they let San Francisco back in the game. So they had San Francisco out of their game plan because San Francisco's game plan is based upon being able to run and pass and have it evenly matched uh, with a really good running game and and at least protect their young quarterback with all the talent they have around them. But And they would have had to do that. If you're up by three scores, what do you think they're going to have to do? You know, they're, they're, they're going to have to throw the ball and they're going to have to throw it often to get back into the game. But they did you know, Campbell didn't do that. But but the, the mortal sin, the real mortal sin, is now they're behind. And three points will tie the game up. And and he goes for it. I mean, if I were the owner, I'd probably have fired him after the game. But people will say, thank God, Bell wasn't the owner. But But you threw away a chance for one of the great upsets in championship history. And yeah. you know what? Brock, Brock Purdy, actually, and that's interesting on San Francisco's side, because still, if Brock Purdy, he wasn't, he wasn't showing the ball very well, 
But if he hadn't run on, on so many occasions, particularly in the fourth quarter, they might not have won that game in spite of Campbell. I mean, he, he, I thought he won the game for San Francisco with his different scrambles. I mean, so that was one of the most winnable championship games I've seen. And I still can't believe it sitting here today that this is, this is how you get knocked out. It was very, very strange to watch. And it's hard, even in my personal catalog of watching games, to remember something like this. The game switch, well, you know, the, the Oilers-Bills comeback, that was different. That was a complete switch in momentum. It didn't really have to do with coaching decisions like that were made. Um, this this was just you know theater of the bizarre, really. Now there there are other things brought out during the week that the Detroit Lions have one of the big biggest analytics department. I did not know that if that's in fact true, but that's they say something like twenty seven people are at the department. That's the problem with what's creeped into pro football. Is a lot of these places are run by these slide rule specialists. But some some people even suggested that it was called down from one of their nerds, uh, the situation. And, of course, it was put up on the screen, the probability that, that if you go for it versus the probability of kicking the field goal, and could the guy kick the field goal? He kicked inside, and I say, what has happened to us? <laughs> I mean, football is one thing that... that particularly when you come to fourth down, the decision whether to kick the field goal, especially today, most of these guys, even the ones that blow it, and even though this game wasn't inside, you know, it's nothing today for somebody to kick a 60 and over field goal. I mean, that's how the game has changed so much from the head-on, straight-ahead kicker to today that, you know, that most of them are sidewinders. So, I mean... Just the whole idea that you're taking out of the hands. Football is a game of still today with all of the changes, all the improvements, the better athletes, the better coaching, 5,000 coaches for, for every position. It's a better game. But on the other hand, it is a game of judgment. And only the coach can feel the pulse of the game to understand what you need to do. Not some nerd, not some analytics saying, well, your probability is this. That doesn't mean a damn thing when you're in third and three and, and you know your quarterback isn't Joe Montana and you know that they're going to be stacked up against it and, and if you don't make it, you lose the game. I mean, anybody, us sitting in the stands, the average fan would say, you've got to kick the field goal. They've got all the momentum. You're behind by three. You've blown a big lead. Kick the damn field goal. If you even take your chances, if it ends up that way in overtime. I, I just, I, I, you know what? I'm still worked up about it. It's not my team. <laughs> well, I, I am too, and I am I am uh, I'm not a Lions fan, but as a football fan, you really hurt for those Lions fans. And again, like like you pointed out, analytics 
accounts for some mathematical equations, but it doesn't account for things like being an underdog on the road. How much is the crowd involved in the game? What is the momentum of the game right now? And those are things that matter in football more than really any other sport. It, it, it is the ultimate, and they've let it they've let it creep into the game. And now, I mean, my understanding is, Michael, that there practically every team has an analytics department. I mean, I don't think I know the Patriots don't have one, but believe me, now that they have a new head coach, and everything that Belichick did was bad, and everything that Mayo will do will be good. Before long, you will have an analytics department here too. I mean, it's it's a disease that has spread, <laughs> spread quickly. And I, you know what? I, I, somebody called me the other day and wanted to discuss no kickoff returns anymore, very few punt returns. The onside kick is like the woolly mammoth. That's that's pretty much gone. So what what do we have left? We we have what you're going to get Sunday. Uh, with the alleged Pro Bowl, you're you're essentially getting flag, aka touch football. Now, I keep saying to you, how long is it going to be after I'm gone? That one day it'll be all football, will be all on the outside. The running back will be extinct. It almost is now, and it'll be a form of flag football. Hopefully, that won't happen, but watch out. Now, um, let's kind of go back and, and chat a little bit about your history at the end of the 1968 season and the end of the 1970 season. At this time, during this this week, you know, you're getting ready for the Super Bowl as, as an organization. What, what is that like for an executive? What is it like for the uh, director of player personnel Super Bowl week? Utter chaos. It, it, it is, um, it's been more perfected now, but I can remember our first Super Bowl uh, was was unbelievable. I mean, you could write a book about it. Joe Namath's promise uh, guaranteeing the win. Joe Namath almost getting in a fist fight with Lou Michaels a couple of days before at a banquet for both teams. Uh, Namath hanging at the swimming pool with the Raiders and the Beauties. And on the other hand, uh, our team trying to be a little bit more restrictive. Uh, We view Bank getting upset kind of because he felt Namath was boasting too much, but he couldn't control them. Writers and fans all over the lobby. Uh, I I mean, you, 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 you don't know how it was and how chaotic it seemed compared to today's chaotic situation and that is your 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 whole everything that you do during the season your your workouts your game planning up to game time coming into the hotel the night before eating the team meal getting up the next day getting prepared going over self your car that's a routine you get into the routine that you it's like going from your little hometown to Las Vegas, which is ironically where they're going. <laughs> so Shula learned a lot uh, from the first time around. He wasn't around for the second time around where they changed it. 
uh, in our case, we were staying at a, I think it was a college or a high school, like 20 miles, 30 miles outside of Miami. So there weren't guys running into Miami and, and being, you know, on the waterfront and, and being able to, to go out and drink and do all the things that you would do, which the Bears and the Raiders took full advantage of when they were on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. So it has somewhat progressed. And I remember the second time around, for sure, when the Dolphins uh, were playing the Cowboys, he, you know, and even though it was in New Orleans, he said that he warned the team, and he warned it each year that he was in it, that the things that they learned, what to avoid, all of the other things. But you can't get away from the whole football world, including now the whole entertainment world, has, is going to descend upon Las Vegas. But what they have now done is they've moved both teams. I think one of the teams, it might be Kansas City, are, are going to be staying like 20, 30 miles outside of Las Vegas. So those players don't get a chance to get into town uh, unless they sneak out or something. That they're at least away from the glitz and all of the things that are going to be going on there. But one way or another, I mean, now they have, you know, the media day. We had a media day, but it was different. The writers would just come in uh, from all over the country and kind of sit at tables and talk to players which they do do later on the week, but now it's a whole production, bringing Martin Scorsese in there to uh, do a three-hour of, of filming of, of the opening night where they march all these guys out in prime time. I mean, you think there are mannequins that we're moving out to take a look at. It's <laughs> a big TV deal. Uh, and then you have the flooding of the media, and I've been to some of these. The flooding of the media to each guy's booth. I mean, it, it's it's like the animals are, are are in the zoo and they're there for people to take a look and pet and then move on to the next one. No matter what you do, your routine is broken up, but it isn't as bad as it used to be. So I I can again just tell you of uh, uh, being in two personally and then covering it to the media four or five other times, it's still, if you ask me how to describe it, it's a full-fledged circus. And you have to keep the noise out. And that isn't always easy. Of the two teams that are going to be in it, I think both of them, but particularly Kansas City, since both teams have been through it before, although it's accelerated since then, that was four years ago, that I think if you're through it once, then you then you know. You know, it's like saying I'm going to be going from a hot shower to a cold shower. Well, if you do it enough, then you get used to it, and that's what it is now. Tolerate it to game time. Now, this is another thing to be aware of, and that is when when we played both times, the games were at three o'clock in the afternoon, and that was still a long wait for normally when you play a game at 12.30, 1 o'clock. Now think about it. You're really talking about 6.30. So you get up, you're nervous that day, you have a pregame meal, and then you get out to the stadium, and then you sit. 
and you sip and you sip and then you it gives you time to think about it gives you time to be too nervous it gives you time to say let's get the game on and then you go out and you work out you know your pre-game workout and then you come back in and you sit again while they're doing all the festivities and then at halftime whether you're ahead or behind you normally sit for 15 minutes now you're sitting for a half an hour now you're cold uh you you need to get warmed up all over again while the next imitation of michael jackson is up there performing it it, it is such a total difference i say assuming the talent is somewhat equal it's it's the ones that handle their nerves the best that are going to win. I think we saw that last year with with Mahomes, and and this is something that really kind of struck me over the past couple of weeks. Where, um, and especially watching him in the AFC Championship game this year, people forget last year he kind of he sat on the bench for most of the first half. The Eagles had the ball for a three quarters of the first half, if not more. A lot of guys get impatient during that time, but Mahomes was really able to uh, to handle himself during that, that time, re- retain his composure, and, and stick with the original game plan. Remember, uh, most guys might, probably wouldn't have played with that ankle that he got. I, I thought he was finished at halftime, and especially with the idea that you have to go in and and you're going to have to sit, even if they work on that ankle. You have to sit for a half, almost a half an hour. Uh, that uh, I I thought his mobility will be lacking, and he he won't be the same guy. And yet he came out and and gutted it out and, and made that great scramble that to me really won the game. I mean, he's he just an extraordinary player. Who I already think is. Not win, not the amount of wins, Super Bowl wins, but I already think is in Tom Brady's class, maybe even better. Yeah, it's hard to uh, hard to disagree with that, and especially you know of his own generation, he's certainly the class of his generation. Clearly, well, I would I, I would say go all the way back uh, to Sid Luckman in 1946 and seeing every quarterbacks. Since then, I would say this is the best combination mind and athletic ability I've ever seen. There are other people that, that might be close to him, but he not only, not only has that type of, of uh, mobility and, and physical abilities, but mentally, I, I think he's right there with the best. And that, that's the part that really separates him from most people. Of most quarterbacks. That's what separated Brady, except Brady knew how to move in the pocket, and so does Mahomes. But Brady never had that scrambling ability. If Brady had that, then Brady would have broken every record. He might have won 10 Super Bowls. Mahomes, if he doesn't get injured, has a chance to get at least six, something like that. We'll see. So what do you think about uh, the upcoming game against the 49ers? Who who uh, what what stands out to you about that game and 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 what's your uh, prediction? Well, first of all, I think the 49ers have more talent on both sides of the ball. 
Uh, they have a terrific tight end uh, in Kittle uh, who could match Kelsey to a degree, but not as prolific as, as Kelsey has been for them, for, for Kansas City. Um, I, I, I think in every, practically every area, I think that the 49ers have more talent. But in, in, in a game like this, I, I don't think the talent matters as much as having to face Patrick Mahomes. I, I like I like the Chiefs' offense, but I don't like any of their receivers except for Kelsey. Scantling, who made the big catch last week at the end to essentially put the game away, you know, he's he's uh, every time he touches the ball, I hold my breath because you don't ever know whether he's going to catch it or drop it. Their receivers are questionable besides Kelsey. They have a decent offensive line, but they've had injuries that could hurt them. Uh, I, I I like their running game at times. Uh, at times, uh, their defense is is good, but I don't think as good as San Francisco's. So all of that being said, I'm still going to pick Kansas City because I think the quarterback is that great. I think uh, Andy Reid's game planning is is really good, and I also think the game planning defensively. It covers up a lot of the areas that you would think would be vulnerable. And particularly, I like their defensive backs. They know how to cover, especially in man coverage. So I'm going for the upset. I think San Francisco is, what, a three-point or two-point favorite? I don't really keep track of the the betting things, but I do think San Francisco started out as a higher favorite than they are after people started placing bets on Kansas City. The only sure bet I have is that Taylor Swift will get on her own private jet and fly from Tokyo, get to Las Vegas in time uh, to watch her boyfriend. That's the only I'm sure of. Well, now, coming up on Sunday, you know, the 49ers, like you said, they're the more talented team overall. They've uh, They've got McCaffrey. Debo Samuel on offense, uh, George Kittle, of course, Brandon Ayuk, very, very good receiver in his own right. And on defense, you've got that front seven that's that's tremendous. The Chiefs, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of like a champion that doesn't have the same amount of talent. You know, they they don't have a receiver like Debo Samuel like they did when they had Tyreek Hill. Um, they don't have the same offensive line that they used to have. Pacheco is is an effective running back. Um, I like him, by the way. I like him a lot. I love Pacheco. Um, but really, you know, the Chiefs used to have several weapons at their disposal in addition to Patrick Mahomes. What do you think that uh, San Francisco needs to do to really have have a great chance to win this game? Well, they can't get behind like they did to Detroit because they get behind to Kansas City. The Kansas City will put a dagger in their heart and it'll be over. That's that's number one. They can't start out that slow. And and with with all of that talent that they have on both sides, uh, at times I I I question because they've got to be so balanced on offense uh, with with 
their running and passing game, particularly with their running game. So if they get out of their rhythm against Kansas City, unlike Detroit, I, I, I think they could be in real trouble. They, they can't, they, and, and their quarterback finally, he's going to really be tested because even though Kansas City's defense isn't particularly talented, uh, they know how to play and they know how to game plan uh, like very few teams do. So everybody talks about Andy Reid and what he's able to do with Patrick Mahomes. But I think that defense has saved them, uh, particularly against Baltimore. So they have to come up with a game plan to kind of negate and, and put all the pressure on the quarterback. And if they can do that, uh, I guarantee you, he, he is not going to be able to scramble like he did last week uh, and, and essentially win the game on his legs against Detroit. That's, that's, that's the fascinating part of this game. A team that doesn't seem to have the same talent, except I guess at the most important position, the quarterback, the team that doesn't have the talent that San Francisco has, I'm still picking, even though they're the underdogs, I'm picking it because I think, at least right now in my mind, their football intelligence is the match of the 49ers' great talent. Yeah, and I think I, I, I have to agree with you. And and I said before, you know, when we talked when we talked before the championship games, I said I I thought that the the Super Bowl champion would would come out of the AFC, and uh, I haven't seen anything different to change my mind. You know, it's one thing to come back against the Packers, who who barely made it into the playoffs, and also beating. The Lions coming back against the Lions with with the basically decision making keeping them in the game, and now you're facing the Kansas City Chiefs who have won multiple Super Bowls uh, with the quarterback, and um, you know they've got other players. I think Chris Jones has won multiple Super Bowls as well, and he's a big part of that team, also. Um, and Andy Reid, of course. You know, I mean, how many championship games, if you count the NFC championship games with, with Philadelphia, how many championship games has he coached in? Um, well, actually, actually, uh, if, if the Philadelphia quarterback hadn't thrown up on himself, uh, they probably would have beaten the Patriots in their first Super Bowl. Well, that's right. Donovan McNabb had the flu, apparently. He did, but I mean, the Eagles, I, I thought the Eagles were going to win that game. Uh, but it didn't work out. But again, you have a coach who has been there many times and knows the pressures and everything else of it versus a coach who was the coordinator when his team, the Falcons, blew the, the biggest lead in Super Bowl history. I mean... He can't keep losing games, I'll tell you that. If he keeps losing the big games, I'm sure he'll still be there. But, you know, it'll be the great what if. What, what is the problem that he can't seem to win the big game? That's what, what happens. You know, you get a reputation, that's it. 
Captain, is there uh, is there anything else uh, important about uh, this upcoming game, or or any of your your Super Bowl memories that that you, you think is important to chat about? Uh, well, that's for another show, but I do want to say it, uh, that that people will read about it once, well, after or before uh, this interview comes out. But uh, there's a personal experience here. Call Weathers, the famous Apollo Creed from the Rocky movies, and other ones uh, died today. And uh, my memories of him are this. Opening day, 1971, behind Jim Plunkett, my first year as general manager, my first game, uh, we upset the Oakland Raiders, and the starting linebacker that day was Carl Weathers. And he was a pretty good linebacker. And then uh, I remember when I first saw Rocky, I said, oh, my God, there's a guy that, that played against us when we upset the Raiders at the very end of the game. It was a big day for me. And uh, seeing that now kind of saddens me. Well, it saddens me to see anybody pass away. But uh, it's like going back in a time capsule and seeing somebody that you knew that played against you in one of the biggest upsets we had early on. He's gone. Call Weathers, the eternal Apollo Creed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please let your friends and family know and give the Game Before the Money a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Please remember also that the Game Before the Money is a 501c3 nonprofit, and you can donate at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions of some episodes are available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics, spelled S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services. Thank you.